Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Those of you that enjoy reading novels or watching a good film know that the the plan of the author and the plan of the screenwriter is to create tension with the main characters. They have a dilemma, they have a problem, and it just gets more and more tangled up, more and more uh, frightening the outcome, and, and there's, a, there's a goal that they're longing for, and it just looks like how in the world will everything be untangled and unknotted? And there's finally a climax where they start pulling the threads and things work out and it all gets resolved. You're familiar with that when it comes to writing and comes to reading and enjoying fictional stories and things like that. The book of Revelation is like that. I'm not suggesting that it's a fictional story, but I am suggesting that it's written in such a way that things are building to a climax and you just wonder who's going to win. Is the devil going to win? Is this evil going to win? Is it really going to triumph the wickedness and evil of our world? Or is Jesus Christ really going to win? And as we were reading in Revelation chapter 19 last week, and we were thinking about the return of Christ, it sure looks like he's winning. I mean, he comes back triumphantly and he crushes all the enemy armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the empire that's arrayed against him. And and Jesus Christ comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords and he wipes out all his enemies and he sets up his kingdom. And the thing that's what's truly amazing, though, is that that's not the final victory. There's something else to come, a true climax on top of the climax, if you will that shows that evil ends once and for all. The plan of God is that there is a day when there will be the end of all evil. And I'm talking about what's written in Revelation chapter 20. Now we've been reading Revelation this year, and as we've been reading through Revelation, we've been thinking about God's end game. And we've been thinking about what God is doing to bring about his will and his plan and his program for for the human race and for all eternity. And it sure looks like there's aspects of it where things are happening in this world that just look awful, violent, wicked, horrific in every way. And is Jesus really going to triumph? And the answer is yes, he is going to triumph. Jesus really does win. And we'll see that as we read in Revelation chapter 20 because his greatest enemy our greatest enemy finally meets his, his final judgment. And all wickedness and all evil is destroyed once and for all. And that should give you and I a lot of hope. And it should also scare the daylights out of us as well. Because there is a judgment day, a day when we stand before God and have to give an account for what we've done with our lives. Have we loved God and served God and feared God? Or have we loved ourselves and served ourselves and done our own thing? There's a consequence to pay for that. Uh, some of you are saying, what's that guy doing in that picture? This is if you, if, you ever, uh, if you ever visit Turkmenistan, okay, do you know where that is? It's right near Uzbekistan, in case you're wondering. And uh, that's near Kazakhstan, which is uh, not far from Armenia, and Azerbaijan, which is in Soviet Central Asia. And uh, it's a country that's basically desert. And back in the 1950s or so, 
there was a, a Soviet gas drilling operation and they were exploring and they were searching for natural gas and there was an explosion and there's a methane leak here in the desert and you can drive hundreds of miles out into the middle of the desert and find this football, si football field size sinkhole that's just on fire all the time. And uh, it's just a <laughs> Devargas uh, gas uh, pit, it's called, and uh, it's just, it's on fire. And they, the locals call it the doorway of hell. And uh, you can see by the picture why it looks like that. We, we see this kind of stuff and we think about these things and we are aware of hell and we're aware of the final judgment and we have heard about the lake of fire and we have lots of different views about that and some of us laugh at it. Some say, well, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because that's where the party is. And people joke like that. And other people say, no, hell is life here on earth. <laughs> there isn't anything in the future like that. I don't believe in the afterlife. If God would torture people in hell, I don't want to love and serve a God like that. Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer, um, nature writer, said that. He didn't want to believe in a God like that, and so he didn't believe there was an after afterlife. And many other people say that as well. But the truth of Scripture is, is that there is a final day of reckoning and there is a final judgment. And you and I need to know it and we need to prepare for it. And we need to make sure that we're not caught by surprise because we will be caught by surprise unless we heed the warning that we're about to read about in Revelation chapter 20. So would you take your Bible, please, and let's um, look at this passage. It's a familiar, famous passage of Scripture. It's on page 1,000. 40, if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you. Page 1040, it's Revelation chapter 20, and we'll start reading in verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. This is the last chapter of human history. The history of humanity is coming to a conclusion and here's the final chapter. And as things are winding down and the plan of God is being brought to a conclusion, as everything that's all tangled up is getting untangled and everything is being resolved, we see here the climax of human history, life as you and I know it. And life as you and I know it, the, the, the history of the human race ends with judgment day before the new heavens and the new earth are brought about. And that's what we see happening here. There are basically three acts, three events, three stages, you could say, that are part of this end of all evil, this, this climax of human history where evil is finally judged once and for all. The first stage, the first act, is what we see in verses 1 through 6. And this is what's known as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And when Jesus returned, as we read at the end of Revelation chapter 19, he conquered the, the kingdom of the Antichrist and his military forces, and he, he conquered all the allies of the Antichrist and he judged them once and for all and that world dictator, that Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, his henchman that was the chief propaganda minister, they were thrown into the lake of fire. And then Christ begins ruling over all of humanity as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John emphasizes, the author of the book of Revelation, he emphasizes that his kingdom lasts a thousand years. He repeats that several times over. He emphasizes the duration of the kingdom and he emphasizes that there are people who are ruling with Christ in that kingdom. Now, the church over the centuries has had different views about this kingdom. Is it a literal kingdom or is it something that's just a, a metaphor or a figure of something else, something that's already going on? There are those who believe that really we're talking about the growth and expansion of the church, the spread of the gospel and the, the fact of the gospel, the good news of Jesus just spreading throughout all the world and people being more and more gradually converted to Jesus and his kingdom and his influence spreading, violence and warfare ceasing because people become followers of Christ and cease fighting with one another. There's, there's uh, equity and there's justice and prosperity and, and all of these good things happen because of the spread of the gospel. That's, that's one view that people have of this passage. Another view is to say that it's a literal kingdom. 
And they might differ, people that hold this view, as to is it a literal thousand years, a true, you know, ten centuries, or is it something that's just a metaphor for a long period of time? And I, I don't know that we really can be conclusive on that. A lot of the numbers in Revelation seem to be more figurative. I don't know if they need to be held to precisely for all of them. But the point he's trying to make is, is those that hold this view, is that this is a long period of time where Christ sets up a literal political kingdom on earth. And it doesn't look like any other kingdom that's in existence right now. It's not a Republican kingdom or a Democratic kingdom, an independent kingdom, a communist kingdom, a capitalist kingdom. It's nothing like that. It's Christ's kingdom. And he sets up this kingdom on earth. And as he sets up his kingdom on earth, there are two big characteristics that, that John emphasizes here. The first off, first thing that he emphasizes is that somebody's missing from this kingdom who's very much working in the kingdoms of this world. And his name is Satan. He's been incarcerated. He's been chained up and thrown into the abyss, the bottomless pit, for this thousand years. One single angel at the time of God, when God wills it to happen, one single angel is able to grab Satan and he's called the, demon, the, the dragon, the, the ancient serpent you know, from the Garden of Eden who tempted Adam and Eve. He's called the devil and he's called Satan, a liar and accuser. He's, he's arrested and he's thrown into this abyss and that abyss is locked up and he's in solitary confinement for this, this, kingdom, this time of Christ's reign on earth. I want you to think about this for a minute. Can you imagine what that would be like? If there's nobody whispering in your mind's ear, hey, why don't you go get some, get some revenge? Why don't you fight for your rights? Why don't you stand up and take that? No one's watching. Can you imagine not having anybody soliciting you and seducing you to try to commit what's evil? Can you imagine not having any kind of satanic influence in the world causing the different groups and tribes and nations of people, the groups of people to fight against one another, to live selfishly, to fight for themselves instead of living in justice and harmony? Can you imagine having a world without that kind of influence? Pretty daggone cool, isn't it? I think not having that satanic influence and presence on earth. That would be wonderful. And that's what's promised here in a way that's not present today. Something else that John emphasizes here when he talks about this kingdom. He says that there are thrones set up, and the thrones are for the people who have been martyrs for Christ during the tribulation period. People who lost their lives because they faithfully declared Christ's message of salvation. They refused to worship the Antichrist. They refused to give in to the kingdoms and rule of the world dictator that's against Christ and against his kingdom. And they were loyal to Jesus no matter what. And these people who've lost their lives, they've been resurrected and they're now given authority. They who were trampled on by the oppressors are now at the top. They who were at the bottom were the tail, they're now the head. They've been promoted, they've been lifted up. And this is a word of hope for everyone that's going through any kind of adversity and persecution for the, for the sake of Christ. That there's a day coming where there'll be a great reversal. And those who are being trampled on and oppressed today for Jesus will be lifted up and exalted and given authority over all the oppressors. And so these are already two giant characteristics, major characteristics of this kingdom. That Satan is bound and has no influence during that time period. 
and that those who have been oppressed are lifted up and given authority to rule. And it says that they serve with Christ as kings and as, as priests. They reign with Christ and they are priests of Christ and of God. Priests in the sense that Christ has come and he is the king and he has set up his kingdom and he is the political ruler on earth at that time. But he's also the object of worship. He is the one that we are to serve and worship. And these who are seated on the throne, they help lead the worship of Christ and they help administrate the authority of Christ and extend his rule throughout the world. You might be thinking, now wait a minute, who is Jesus ruling over if everybody was killed during the Battle of Armageddon at the end of chapter 19? Well, the, the victims in that war are all those who fought against Christ. There'll be many people that are not part of the armies who will survive that and they will go into this kingdom along with those who are alive who've been loyal to Christ. It's they and their children that go into this kingdom and inhabit this kingdom. And the thing that's very interesting when you look at the scope and sequence of Scripture is that this kingdom is like the greatest time in Earth's human history. It's the best government that there's ever been. It's the most productive time that there's ever been. And you see this not in Revelation as much as you witness it and notice it when you're reading through the prophets of the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament had a very important job. They were constantly declaring the word of the Lord, calling the people of Israel back to worship God and to love God and serve God with all their hearts. And they were constantly warning against you know, the, the injustice and violence and, and uh, uh, spiritual adultery and idolatry that was going on, the immorality of that culture. They were constantly railing against that and preaching against that and calling people back to God. And part of their message was, if you don't do that, God is going to send other countries who are going to come and they're going to conquer you and carry you off into captivity. But don't lose heart. The day will come that after you spend time in captivity, God is going to bring you back home. You'll return from exile and you'll come back to your home and get to start all over. But these prophets, they do something as they're declaring the word of the Lord that they're giving a vision for what will happen in the future. And it's very obvious that it was beyond just coming back home to the land of Palestine. They start talking about something that is global in its scope and something that just takes the current world that we live in and turns it upside down from something that's so broken and awful to something that's so beautiful and wonderful. For example, when you're reading in Isaiah and you're reading in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about that there is such a change in mankind's, humankind's relationship with nature that everything is turned on its head. You've got little babies that can sit down beside the nest of a viper, a poisonous snake, a cobra, and play with the cobra and not get hurt. I'm not talking about a Pentecostal church service. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that there's, there's the idea that the, the child can sit there and play with a poisonous snake. The lion can lay down with the lamb. A little child will lead all of them. And there's this, this idea of a harmony between human beings in the animal world in a way that we don't see today. And I'm not just talking about all the animals get domesticated somehow. We, we learn how to teach them tricks. It's not that. It's, 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 there's a change. There's a, a huge agricultural change in that there's a, a prosperity, a change ecologically that comes about where the crops are able to produce in such a way. In Amos chapter 9, it describes how the, the mountains of Israel will be covered with these vineyards. 
And there's so many grapes, and the grapes are so plump and juicy that Amos says it's like these rivers of wine flow down the mountains. There's so many grapes. I understand it's a hyperbole. You know, a conscious exaggeration get a point across. But he's saying that there's going to be such prosperity. What really gets me in that same chapter, it says that the reaper in the field will be reaping and threshing the grain, and he's telling the people that are planting to get out of the way because things are growing so fast. Move it! We've got a harvest to bring in. It's like, well, I'm just plowing and throwing the seed down, and boom, it's growing. Again, a hyperbole, but it just it's talking about the prosperity, agricultural production that's available at that time. In Isaiah chapter 2, it talks about there will be such peace and security that people will give up their weapons. You won't need to defend yourself because everybody prospers. Everybody has what they need. Everybody's living in harmony. There's perfect justice and perfect peace. They'll take their swords and they'll go to the blacksmith and they'll beat those swords into farm implements, plowshares. Why? Because there's so much agricultural work to be done, we don't have enough tools. We don't need the weapons, we need farm implements. We need plows, we need threshing, we need sickles, we need all of this because things are just so abundant. We don't need to fight each other anymore. Because there's perfect peace, because Christ has come and he's reigning over us. There's justice, perfect justice. All of this is taking place because Christ is present on earth, living with us, and we can worship him and we can serve him. In fact, it even describes the harmony among people this way in a way that is absolutely shocking to you and I when you think about it today. You're you're well aware of the animosity between Israel and the Palestinians and the majority of the Arab world. You're familiar with that. It's in the news all the time, right? But in, in, in in the prophets of the Old Testament, it says that the Egyptian and the Syrian and the Israelite will go to the temple together and they will worship as brothers. And I can hardly imagine that, that they will be brothers not just, you know, we've got a peace treaty and we tolerate one another. Not that, but even better. That we'll live in harmony and be at peace with one another because Christ is our King. There's all kinds of wonderful things that are described in this kingdom. I think this first stage, you could say it, it's this. It's a foretaste of heaven. And God is trying to show humanity that I'll live here on earth for this thousand years, for this long period of time, and I'm going to show you what it's like when you let me be Lord of all. Life can be really good if I'm your king. Will you let me be your king? Will you let me rule you with love and justice? Will you let me be in charge of nature? Will you surrender to me and let me be your king and Lord of all life? Will you do that? And you might be thinking, a thousand years, <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah, but God says a thousand years is like a day in his mind. So he's doing this for this long period of time. Someone said it this way, it's like 14 generations, 14 lifetimes, human life is going to experience God present on earth. It's like a new Garden of Eden. It's like everything all over again. Look, I'm with you and look how I can prosper. Look what I can give you with life. Look how life can be when I'm at the center of it. It's like the Garden of Eden all over again. But there's one thing that bothers me in that opening description there. I think it's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. Did you notice that one? About when talking about Satan being chained up? 
After that, he must be released for a little while. Huh? God, you've got him right where you want him. (laughs) He's chained up and you're going to let him out? That's silly. That's crazy. Not that you would ever call God crazy, of course, but it is crazy. There is something bizarre about this. Why in the world would God do that? I mean, you can just finish it right now. Let's just go right into heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Let's just go. Why do we need to? Why are you letting him out? And when you read beginning in verse 7, you see what happens when he gets let out. So the thousand years are over. Satan's released from his prison. And it says that he will come out and to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And he uses a phrase, John does from um, the book of Ezekiel, a description of the prophecies of a final battle coming to Israel. And he says these two nations, Gog and Magog, Sounds pretty ominous. It's just talking about nations to the north, nations at the far reaches of the earth, furthest away from Israel, coming and attacking Israel. Not neighbors, but somebody from far away coming and attack. And it says that these nations are going to come from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and the devil is able to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Okay, so let's just kind of review where we've been at briefly. Jesus comes back. He's already fought this battle, the battle of Armageddon. He's conquered the Antichrist, the false prophet. He sets up his kingdom. And for a thousand years, a thousand years, there's peace, prosperity, and plenty for everyone. And they have a relationship with God and they can have harmony with one another. And life is perfect on earth. And then God allows the second coming of Satan, so to speak, an evil parousia, an evil return of Satan. And he comes, and he is able to deceive all the people of the human race to come and fight against Jesus and his people, those who do surrender to him and make Jesus Lord and King of all. Why? Why does God permit this? I think there are two reasons. I think God is trying to show you and me and everybody else that's reading this and everyone who's witnessing these final events of the final judgment that Satan is incurably wicked. There is no reforming Satan. There is no rehabilitating Satan. There is no, you give him a second chance and he doesn't change. You give him a third chance, you give him a thousand chances. You put him away for a thousand years and he doesn't repent and he doesn't change his mind. He is still hell-bent on worshiping himself and insisting that his way is better than God's way. And he doesn't change. He deserves the judgment that he's about to receive. But there's something else that's being shown by this. It also shows, and this is what's hard to swallow, it also shows that the human race by nature is hell-bent on serving themselves. That we will always say, I can do it better than God. Oh, yeah, Jesus is king, and yes, life has been good, and yes, we're prosperous, but I can do it better. Yes, we're supposed to worship Jesus. Yes, he's in charge. Yes, we have to go his way, but I can do it better. 
Yes, we have peace and prosperity, but I can do it better. Yes, everybody gets treated equally and, and everybody's blessed and everybody's prosperous and everybody's cared for. Everybody's safe and secure and nobody's being bullied and nobody's being terrorized and there's no violence, but I can do it better. Everybody's healthy, but I can do it better. Everybody's happy, but I can do it better. And that's the nature of human nature. That's exactly what Adam and Eve wound up believing when they were tempted by the devil, the serpent. You can do this better. God doesn't know what he's doing. You can do it better. And so when Satan is released, you know what God is showing by this? No matter how good it is when I'm in charge, you will think that you can do it better unless you surrender to me. And humankind doesn't do that. And the devil doesn't do that. And so they actually, the devil is able to trick the people and lies. And by the way, when the devil comes out of his imprisonment, it says that he will deceive the nations. He's been doing that from the beginning of time, deceiving people, leading people astray. That's really the Satan's only strength is he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. And, and he will tell his lies, his fakery over and over again, and, and people will believe it. I, I thought about it this way, and I'm not sure this is really theologically accurate, but I kind of like the analogy, and I hope you will too. I, I always think of Satan, he's like Godzilla, you know, the big dragon. And there's Godzilla coming out of the water and he starts walking through New York City and he swings his tail and knocks down skyscrapers and he burps and belches and fire comes out and all this stuff and, and tanks and guns and planes are dropping bombs and doing all this and Godzilla just keeps going along. He's unstoppable. I think the devil's like that. He's unstoppable. And God says, no, I, I want you to see him through the lenses of Scripture so you can see him accurately. And when you do that, you know what the devil is? He's just a little salamander. You know, the little Geico gecko. That's all he is. He, he's not Godzilla. He's, he's just this little thing, this little squirt, who just happens to be a masterful liar, who just happens to be very careful and creative in distorting the truth. A friend said to me recently, just, just today, you know, he will tell the truth 90% of the time and just leave out that little 10%. Just twist it a little bit. It sounds so believable. But it's a lie that will deceive. You can do it better. Who does Jesus think he is getting off on the idea that he needs to be the King of kings and Lord of lords? What about your rights? What about your authority? You can do it better. Throw off the yoke of his rule. And so Jesus, it says in this passage, when they come and they march against Jerusalem from all the four corners of the earth, this worldwide final rebellion, and by the way, it's a feudal rebellion because look what happens. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded, they besieged the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. God speaks the word and the fire of judgment falls upon them and they're killed. And not only that, but the devil who may try to escape won't escape. And it says in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil finally gets his judgment. He gets his due because he has worshipped himself 
And in his pride, he has led humanity against God, lying to them, deceiving them, and now he's leading them into judgment. But he goes first. And he's there with the, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're tormented day and night for and ever and ever. And, I, and it's a frightening thing because it's just simply saying that in that lake of fire, they're not consumed. They're still there. They're still suffering. They're experiencing the torment. Now you might be saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe, maybe this lake of fire, is that a metaphor? Is that just kind of symbolic picture imagery of the final judgment and being separated from God? And Honestly, I need to admit to you, it could be that. But I don't want to gamble on it. I hope you won't either. I think definitely what he's trying to say, I mean, it's, there are mysterious aspects of it, and we kind of have to wait and see. But I think he's giving us a very serious warning that there is this awful sorrow, grief, pain coming to those who reject God. They will suffer this judgment, and they will be there, and it will be like being tortured, tormented, always. And it doesn't stop. And the problem is, is some people say, well, you know, this lake of fire and hell and stuff like that, you know, people have to burn up eventually. And I get the point, what they're trying to say, but there's also a second resurrection. And if those who go through the first resurrection, those who follow Christ are resurrected and their physical bodies are made glorious and powerful and wonderful, maybe those who are resurrected who've rejected Christ and who've worshipped themselves and worshipped other things, maybe they become what they've worshipped. And they actually become subhuman. And maybe they're given a body that's actually designed to never be burned up, but to always suffer the pain. Some people say, but you know what? The people that go to the lake of fire, that's not fair that God would do that. It's not fair that God would do that. A loving God would never do that. But I want to remind you that if you really love something, you have to also be against the things that threatens what you love. A loving God demands a God of anger and wrath as well. I like something that Miroslav Wolf, Miroslav Wolf was a, a Croatian theologian, Bible scholar. He's written extensively. And you may remember Croatia, one of the uh, re, uh, republics of uh, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia. And after their civil war, it became its own country. And there was another civil war that was involved in that, in Serbia and uh, Bosnia as well. And uh, Miroslav Volf, as he wrote about, you know, as he was beginning his career as a theologian and Bible teacher, he says, I, I struggled with accepting the idea of God's wrath. I thought a God of love could never have, a, you know, be a God of anger and wrath. And he writes this, he said, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from where I come. According to some estimates, over 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry about that. He then writes, or think of Rwanda, one of the countries of Central Africa. And Rwanda went through a horrific 
time of brutality and violence in the 1990s where the Hutsis and the Tutu tribes were fighting against one another. And it says this, that over 800, he points this out, in the last decade, over 800,000 people were hacked to death by machetes in this intertribal violence in 100 days. 800,000 people dying in just 100 days, three months, through this violence. How did God react to, the, to that carnage? Was he doting on the perpetrators, the murderers, in a grandfatherly fashion? There, 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 I know you didn't really mean it. Did he, did he refuse to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirm the perpetrator's basic goodness? Oh, I know that down in your heart you really meant good, even though you just murdered that, wife, that lady and her children. Wasn't God fiercely angry at them? Yes. Of course he was. He's a God of justice and a God of love. And it requires that he be a God that allows for hell to exist as well. I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath. I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't, right, wrath, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. I know that's hard for us to understand. There are those who have said that, you know, I don't want to worship a God that believes in torturing people for eternity. And that's not what we're talking about. You see, I think the truth is, is that people choose to go to hell. I know that sounds kind of crazy. You know, who in their right mind would choose to lake a fire? But the fact that we choose to go against God and go our own way, we get the results of the choices that we make. We don't want God. We don't want to submit to Him. We don't like this idea that He's given us a foretaste of heaven. We, we, we've tried to assert our own will and demand our own rights through this final rebellion, this futile rebellion. The only thing left is for us to take the future we have chosen, which is the final judgment. This judgment is described beginning in verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It's great because the task of judging all people is immense. This is something that God doesn't choose to do lightly. It's something very sobering and serious. It's immense. It's white just to talk about the splendor and glory and holiness of God, the righteousness of God. It's a throne because he's the one who, as the creator of all things and the savior of those who trust in him, he has the right to exercise this judgment. And John sees this throne and he sees God sitting on it and it says that his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I think that little cryptic statement is just a reference back to what Peter says in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7, 8, 9, 10. It talks about heaven and earth dissolving with fervent heat in this old earth and this old heaven and universe that we live in being renovated by fire and then a new heaven and a new earth coming. And I think what we have is the, 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 the dissolving, the diluting and dissolving of this current world that we're living in and then the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and in between those two events is this judgment day. And that's what we have here described in Revelation 20. And John sees the throne and he sees all that's taken place. And in verse 20, we've, we've seen the judge, here the people being judged. 
And in verse 20, it says, I, verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. When he means great and small, he's just saying everybody. The people who are rich and powerful, holy and super spiritual, the people who have influence and, and great power, they will not be able to escape this judgment. The people who are small, the people who are ignored, the people who are not noticed, they don't escape the judgment either. Everybody is included. Everyone who's rejected Christ, everyone who's rebelled against Christ, they will come and stand before him at this judgment. And there's evidence to support the judgment that's about to be rendered because he says, and there were books opened. And then there was another book opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. In other words, as this trial scene opens up, God sitting on his throne and every, all the groups of people being brought before God, each person individually is being judged by God and they are, the, the judgment is rendered according to what has been recorded in the books. What's recorded in the books? The deeds that have been done, the things that have been said, the thoughts that have been thought and imagined. Those things, that's the record of every person's life. Now, I'm not trying to say that God just has this gigantic computer database and you know he's monitoring you and all of this, but there is a sense where God does see and know all things. And so there's a book where there's a written record of all that we've done. So someone can't say, but, but you know I didn't mean that. No, but I saw what you did. It's, it's kind of like when, when our kids were growing up, one of the older brothers would tease his younger sister, and, and he would say this and get her crying and something like that, and he goes, I was just joking. Yeah, but you still acted like a jerk and said what you said. And you shouldn't have. You still said it. It's what you did. That's what counts. It's what you said. It's the thoughts that you thought. The intentions, the excuses, the alibis, the, the, the explanations for what we the rationalizations, those don't count in this situation. It's what you've done. And they're judged according to their deeds, and the deeds are recorded in the book. Every person has to give an account for what they've done, and the record is there to show that the judgment is just. And it says that the sea gave up its dead, and those who are in it, those who died at sea. Death and Hades, talking about those who have died and are in that intermediate state waiting for this judgment day, they, they finally come, they're resurrected and they're brought before God and they face their final judgment. And the sea and Hades, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and they were judged, each one of them, and that's emphatic. Yes, these groups are judged, but every individual person on their own is being judged. I don't know how long this takes. But I know it's thorough, and I know it's fair, and I know it's just, and it will be right. The verdict will be right, and there'll be no arguing against that. Each one of them will be judged according to what they, were done, what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And verse 15 is the saddest verse and the most hopeful verse in all the Bible. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
You see, all the books are there. All the records of every person's life, wherever they lived, where, whenever they lived, whatever they've done, it's recorded in these books. But there's one more book. You see, those books that record your life and my life, those books condemn us. Those books show that we deserve the lake of fire. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve that because that's what the record shows, the lies I've told, the the selfishness I've done, the people I've hurt, the things I've done to hurt myself and offend God. That's all recorded there in those books. And there's no way that I can argue against what I've done. But there's one more book. And that book is the book of life. And that's been appealed to throughout the book of Revelation. It's the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb is Jesus, the one who died for our sins, slain like a lamb of sacrifice, dying on the cross. He died in our place for our forgiveness and acceptance with God. He was buried in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into glory. And he's the one that came back in power and glory and ruled over earth during its golden age of the the millennial kingdom. He's the one that is worthy of our worship. He's the one that can put all our life that's messed up, can put it back straight and make it right. He's the one that can do that. He's the one that we need to surrender to. And whether or not you've trusted him or surrendered to him is recorded in that book. Have you really put your trust in Christ? It's, It's like a census document. It's a role that lists Everybody who's a citizen of God's kingdom, everybody who's a member of God's family is listed in that book, like the census role of a nation or a city. Is your name in that book? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? If you're trusting in the good deeds you've done, those books will condemn you because the record shows Sorry, you've loved yourself more than you've loved God. I've loved myself more than I love God. And I've served myself. And in my pride and in my self-righteousness, I thought I could live better than God's plan for me. That's the essence of sin. I can do it myself. And I can do it better than God. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are saying, I can live life without God's help. And I can do it better than he can. That's sin. And so when I think about that, I think we all agree that people like Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden and maybe people like Charles Manson or a rapist or a child molester or or some other serial killer, those kind of people, they definitely need to go to the lake of fire because they really deserve to go to hell. They deserve it. But what we struggle with is, you know, granny over here. And Granny's 90 years old and she passed away in her sleep and she played the organ at church and she baked cakes for the church bake sale at the, you know, the, the, the shopping center to raise money for the new parking lot. She was a den mother when she was younger in Cub Scouts. She helped register people for voting. She did all these great things in the community. She collected money for the March of Dimes. She did all these kind of things. But she never trusted Christ because she thought she was good enough without him, even though she was spiritual and religious. She never felt she needed to trust in Jesus because she wasn't that bad. And the thing is, Hitler goes to hell, but so does Granny. And that's hard for us to take. And we say, that's not fair. 
But it is. It truly is. Because in Granny's heart is the same pride and the same selfishness and the same self-reliance, maybe the same bitterness, maybe other issues that just, she would never cause a holocaust. She would never start a war. But she lived for herself and said she didn't need God to really be her savior. And sadly, she deserves hell too. And I say this as somebody who deserves hell himself. I'm worthy of it to go to hell. That's why it's really horrible to go around telling people to go to hell. Because you don't know what you're saying. How awful it really is to wish somebody would wind up in the lake of fire. And yet that's exactly what happens when we choose to reject Christ because it's only when we trust in Christ that our name gets in the book of life and that's what allows us to be forgiven and accepted by God and welcomed in his kingdom and we escape that final judgment and we live with him forever. The fact of the matter is everybody at the great white throne judgment, they're going to, the records of the, of the deeds of their lives is going to condemn them and prove to them beyond any argument that they deserve to go to the lake of fire. And then they'll say, but wait, 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 wait. Uh, check the book of life. I'm sorry, the name is not listed here. They deserve it. I deserve it too. But it's only if your name is in the book of life can you be exempt from that. And it's trusting Christ. That's the issue. Have you trusted in him? And are you following him? And when we wrestle with all this, it's easy to come away and say, sure glad I'm not going to hell. I trust Jesus. And I just want to ask you, are you so sure? <laughs> Don't be arrogant. Don't be cocky. Don't be self-sufficient, planning yourself on the black. I'm glad I've got this settled. I'm glad I'm not like those other people that refuse to trust Jesus. I trust Jesus. And it's easy to kind of be prideful. There's no room for pride in any of this. There's no room for any arrogance. There's a sense where, if anything, we need to have compassion. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of warning. If you knew that there was judgment coming, wouldn't you want to be warned? If you knew that you were on your way to hell, wouldn't you want to be warned? And the answer is, of course, all of us would want that. We get mad when the GPS doesn't tell us that there's a traffic jam up ahead. A tree had blown down. Roads blocked. We get frustrated over that. We want somebody to warn us. Well, the warning is, is that there's judgment coming and you need to be ready by trusting Christ and following him. This also challenges me that I need to be aware of the fact that there's a devil who's constantly lying and constantly seeking to deceive me about the future. And the future is judgment day is coming. And if judgment day is really coming, then even though I may be escaping judgment because of the mercy of God, I need to care and love and be concerned about the people around me who don't know Christ yet. I need to make sure that they hear. I need to tell them, I need to warn them, not with pride, not with arrogance, not with like I'm superior to you, holier than thou, I'm not like that. But just, brother, I wanna encourage you, friend, I wanna warn you, this is serious. We fear God today so we don't have to fear God later. And that's what is happening. And that's why this story is here. I may think that I don't need to tell other people about Christ because they're fine. Look how good their life is. 
Look how prosperous they are. Look how together they've got it. But the fact of the matter is, is that even though all the good deeds show their goodness, if their name is not written in the book of life, they're lost. They've lost everything. What did they do with Jesus? William Willimon is a Methodist church leader, bishop, and he talks about his early days as a pastor in Georgia, rural Georgia. And he said that in his community, there was a a funeral at another church, and he and his wife went to the funeral for that person who was deceased. And it was a different tradition, a different uh, denomination. And so the, the church service consisted, the funeral service consisted of the pastor preaching a sermon from the pulpit that was over top an open casket with the the dead person laying in it. And so you can just kind of imagine the pulpit up here and the pastor's leaning over the the, the pulpit and he's pounding the pulpit and he's waving his Bible and he's saying, it's too late for Joe. Joe maybe wanted to turn his life around. He maybe wanted to be a better husband. He maybe wanted to get right with God, but Joe's dead and it's too late. Joe wanted to do all these these things and make his life better, but it's too late. It's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You can trust Christ today. It's not too late to you, but it's too late for Joe. And the pastor went on with that kind of preaching, and he even told a story how there was a Greyhound bus that crashed in a procession of cars that were on their way from a church to the cemetery, and a bunch of people were killed. And that could happen to you. It could happen today. You still have time, but Joe doesn't have any more time. But you still have time. Will you get right with God today? And it went on like that. Will Willimon said that when he got in the car and he and his wife started driving home, he was so angry at that pastor for how he preached that sermon. Maybe you'd be angry too. I've been in sermons and funerals like that, and I've kind of thought the same thing. How insensitive. How rude. How manipulative. It was just absolutely disgusting what he did. That was no comfort. That was no way to honor the memory of the dead or be a comfort to the family. There was no comfort in that at all. That was awful what that pastor did. And his wife was just sitting there in the car and she's listening to him kind of go on and on about how angry he was about this funeral service. And his wife said to him, you know, you're absolutely right. It was disgusting and it was insensitive and it was manipulative. And you know what was the worst of all? He was absolutely right. It was true. Those things can happen. It is too late for Joe. We all want to be polite and respectful. We don't want to offend other people. We don't want to do that. But somehow, some way, we've got to have enough sense of urgency and enough sense of compassion that we're willing to remind folks and remind ourselves that judgment day is coming and that we all must give an account for God to God for what we've done with our lives. If you know that Christ died for you and rose from the dead from you, yes, praise God, he saved you from the final judgment. But are you telling others and warning others so they can escape that judgment too and find the life that God wants them to have in Christ? Will you tell them? I hope you will. Will you join me in prayer, please? Lord, those things are all true. There is a final judgment coming. And there will come a time when it's too late. And I thank you that today, it's not too late for those who are here and those who are listening to this. 
I ask, Father in heaven, that you would move and stir in our hearts, that we would truly surrender to Jesus, that we would see that, yes, you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that sinners and the devil, they deserve that final judgment. But I thank you that in your love and your mercy, you have made it possible for us to escape that and find life with you for all eternity. Thank you, Father in heaven. I pray that you would just help us take from this the warning, the message, the hope, the fact that we know that there is a God who's going to bring an end to all evil. Thank you. I ask that you would bless my folks and friends who are here today. May we truly take the most and use the time that we have today to make you known for your honor and for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.